This is the Behind the Scenes at the Museum podcast. Episode 2, The Renaissance Nude. So, all these paintings that we now have in galleries and that are in, seen in this strange, sterile environment, I suppose, none of them were painted for that situation from the 15th and early 16th centuries. A lot of these paintings of, of nudes were made, really famous ones were made for partying, basically, but for a very specific kind of partying. So they're made for pleasure, they're made for people to discuss things in front of, you know, the kind of discussions people have in galleries in front of these paintings, exactly their purpose, you know, we're still doing it, and that's still important. But they're not for people's, they're not for uneducated people's eyes. The idea that, you know, you go into the National Gallery now in in Edinburgh or in London or galleries all around the world and you see these school groups in front of these actually profoundly disturbing paintings. Hello and welcome to Behind the Scenes at the Museum with me, Tiffany Jenkins. In this episode, I'm joined by the art historian Jill Burke. Jill is a leading expert in Italian Renaissance art. Her research focuses on the representation of the body in Italy and Europe from around 1400 to 1600. It's the subject of her latest book, The Italian Renaissance Nude, which is published by Yale University Press. And it's the subject of the exhibition The Renaissance Nude, which is on at the Royal Academy in London, for which she was one of the curators and which has travelled from the Getty in Los Angeles. So Jill, it's really funny to think about this because when I first heard about your research and The Renaissance Nude, I kind of assumed it was quite a well-ploughed territory Mm -hmm. but that seems to be entirely wrong what motivated you to do your book in the first place well it's interesting because I talked to the chief curator of the Renaissance Nude when they asked me to be on the uh, team and both he and I had thought at the beginnings of our project there must be a lot of stuff on the Renaissance Nude there must be books written exhibitions there's nothing my book on the Italian Renaissance Nude is the first book on the Italian Renaissance Nude, which is incredible because it's such a big subject. People write about it, but no, one, no one's focused on it in, in this way. What about somebody like Kenneth Clark, who did mm-hmm. the research on the, on, the, on the nude and nakedness? What, mm-hmm. Were you responding to him? What was he saying that's different to this? Well, um, Clark's book uh, on the nude, uh, which came out in 1956, it became a kind of standard um, text that everyone reads and everyone responds to he writes about the nude and his most famous um, observation is that there are two words for uh, nakedness in English as the naked and the nude and he makes this difference he says the nude is a a kind of timeless form that um, shows the pinnacle of art and the pinnacle of of, of human form whereas nakedness is this kind of uh, is, is correlated with shame, with the kind of when people are naked, he says nakedness is huddled and defenceless, whereas the nude is artistic and beautiful. And so there's a lot wrong with Clark, but most of all, what's wrong with him is that he wasn't really interested in why the nude should become such an important form in 15th and 16th century Europe. He said that. Um, the revival of the nude in the Renaissance was an unexplained miracle. Mm. And there was this, the legacy of Clark was that the nude was almost something that was so wonderful 
and so universally accepted that it was inevitable. It was an inevitability uh, that it was going to be uh, a very important central part, actually, of Western art for 500 years, between about 1500 and uh, the, you know, the 20th century. But in fact, this just isn't the case. Mm-hmm. And when there's major changes in the representation of anything, but say the representation of the body, you have to look at why. Who is this serving? Who uh, wanted to promulgate this form? And what does it, first of all, what does it say about changes in the understanding of people's bodies? And what are its effects? Um, so that's what I was really interested in asking. Why at that time and who it benefited? It's interesting because looking at other uh, artistic traditions, you absolutely get images of naked figures in other artistic traditions, um, like Chinese art, Japanese art. Um, Indian art certainly has a big tradition of nakedness, but it's not doesn't have the same valence, doesn't have the same meanings as it does for central meanings. It does for the development of Western art, and a lot of artists respond to the Renaissance need ever since. You know, there's this constant making and an echo and an echo and an echo. That's why it's quite important to understand it, its inception, what it means, because it's been responded to ever since. So you go back in your research in time, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, do you start with the actual naked body itself, how it was seen mm-hmm. in that period? So that was my main question um, when I started off. I thought, well, so there's a few nudes through the Middle Ages. You do get nudes and, and, and naked figures and classical revivals. It's not that it doesn't happen. It does happen in specific places. But then suddenly around around 1500, you get this proliferation of nudes in art all, all over the place. Um, and it seems to be something that is common and that people accept. And are these, so, are these um, by artists we would recognise? Oh, I mean, so we're talking about people like Michelangelo, Titian, Botticelli, uh, Raphael, um, Dürer, all the major artists mm-hmm. are depicting nudes by uh, the early 16th century, all the major European artists. Um, so I, I started, my starting point was how does this relate to understandings of nakedness? And um, nakedness was... And how does this, how do understandings of nakedness change over the century? So nakedness is associated, say, in around 1400, overwhelmingly with poverty, ideas of poverty, because clothing is expensive, clothing has to be replaced, and the people who can't afford that and who might go around with, say, their genitals uncovered mm-hmm. and are... Poor. Just accidental. Accidental, yeah. yeah. Um, or because, I mean, there's laws, there's sumptuary laws in Italian cities saying you're not allowed to go around with your genitals uncovered. I, why do you think that? Is that because it did accidentally happen and therefore mm. they need to kind of have set some kind of boundary of yeah. public taste? I'm going to have to explain a little bit about underwear. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like that. <laughs> so um, if you imagine um, a typical kind of... Uh, renaissance uh, doublet and hose you know mm-hmm. that you might see in a shakespeare play so you have a, a jacket that's quite tight and uh, bodiced and that ends around the hips uh. okay and then you have hose which are two separate legs and they're tied because there's no elastic obviously to the hose and then to a central bit of material that can uh, that became a cod piece later on but is much flatter at the beginning and what can happen is that that if there's not enough material to cover the central bit you expose yourself um women were slightly different much more likely not to expose themselves because they wore long dresses and long shifts but they didn't have any didn't wear any underwear at all um so the potential for exposure (laughs) 
<laughs> it's quite high, really. There wasn't any women didn't wear knickers or anything at this time. So the association of of nakedness with poverty presumably mm. means that there's a certain amount of shame. Absolutely. It. So there's there's two bits I suppose to this po- poverty. If you think about the story of Adam and Eve, which is the central story in um, the, all the monotheistic religions, um, Adam and Eve, when Eve. Um, takes the um, uh, apple from the tree of knowledge, which she's told not to, of course, by God. She's disobeying God. And then she gives it to Adam. And then they both realise they're naked. And this is, Mm. realising they're naked is a central part of how nakedness is understood. It's related to original sin and it's related to the expulsion from paradise. So that's, this is, is connected with shame. Equally, in the Christian tradition, and this is very important, from about the late 13th century onwards, you get this interest in nakedness as a signifier of humility mm-hmm. so um the franciscan friars particularly um would deliberately go around um naked whether it was completely naked or with some covering it's, it's hard to tell from the records uh, but certainly with their chest bed for example as a mark of humility so you'd have naked processions of franciscan friars for example um christ was uh, probably the first um, uh, person to be um, depicted naked with regularity is Christ. Um, you know, our idea of the Christ child being a naked baby is uh, was not Christ child wasn't naked regularly until say the fourteenth century. Similarly, Christ on the cross being naked is an innovation that happened really in the late Middle Ages. Um, so the first naked person. So so it's very tight to Christian culture nakedness. Mm-hmm. But because of its humility, because it's associated with poverty, not because it's this grand kind of classicizing idea of the human, it's potent, It's absolutely because it's um, abject. Um, you write about the women would have probably worn the chemise oh. even in bed. Mm-hmm. And so in, in terms of sexual relationships, how mm-hmm. is nakedness seen, do you think? I think we have to separate male and female nakedness um, because... Um, it's slightly different in different parts of Europe, but in Italy, female nakedness is very, very transgressive. Um, so the Italian preachers will tell women never, ever to allow themselves to be seen naked by their husbands. And so they wear these um, really big um, linen um uh, kind of slips but the chemise is almost for us a chemise nice. is a quite yeah. small thing <laughs> but these, these could be like like smocks Mine's really <laughs> yeah i'm sure i'm sure she's gorgeous <laughs> but um they're not they're not you know they're not kind of sexy things these are like big smocky type things and they're expected to wear those pretty much all the time so people would wear you uh, would change them a lot they'd have a lot of them um but they were not expected to be seen naked by their husbands and people would say because some things are permitted to touch but not permitted to see ah. so um, so it's for procreation that was basically yeah. the deal and anything else would be yeah. s- would be perhaps. transgressive because yeah. sex within marriage it's okay if it's for procreation but anything's for what they might call brute enjoyment would be frowned <laughs> upon and this includes looking and so conversely what you get in the erotic literature is loads and loads of concentration on women taking their chemise off oh. and taking their uh, undergarments off, and then so and and it's often there's a great um, piece of pornographic literature which I've had to read for my work. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's a great piece of pornographic literature from the early 16th century where it describes this woman and her lover having uh, sex in multiple positions. 
and you re- you were reading this along, and then after about they have sex in all these different kinds of positions, it says, and then he asked me to take my my smock off, <laughs> and I said no <laughs> because it was too. <laughs> I'm, not that, type I, of I'm girl. not that type of girl. And then she did, and then they're like, oh, and it was amazing, and we looked at each other all over. It makes you think ever so slightly of that. I don't know if it's true that story about the Victorians and how table legs and and ankles were actually arousing because mm-hmm. they were so often covered by the mm-hmm. skirt. A lot of people's ideas of, of what happened in the past come from our understandings of the 19th century. So there's there's coupled in the Renaissance, there's a really bawdy sense of humour. Mm-hmm. And people talk about sex all the time. So there's loads of carnivalesque poetry where which has got loads of clumsy sexual metaphors like uh, um, uh, javelins entering donuts, this kind of thing. Which are really sexual. Whereas the Victorians, it's about sex. In the Renaissance, it's about protecting the patrimony. So the reason why they don't want women to be sexually active is completely because of transmission of wealth through Mm -hmm. uh, the male line. And... Well, not completely, but it's one of the main reasons. So it's 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 slightly it's slightly in a different. I think of it slightly differently to oh, the Victorians. Yeah. So then, what happened in the way the, the nude was seen in art from the Middle Ages to this period? Well, this is a complicated question. Um, so there's a few things. First of all, there's a reconsideration of nakedness and of the kind of ideas of the human body. And so you get, obviously, a big interest in classical culture in the Renaissance. This Mm. is why it's called the Renaissance. This is something that everyone knows. And it used to be thought that it was a straightforward enthusiasm for um, classical nude sculptures of antiquity. And that's why Renaissance people took them up. But that's really hard to sustain now. Because actually what happens is people are really interested in inscriptions and non-nude sculptures at the beginning and a bit wary, uh, say, in the 14th century. There's a tradition in Christianity of the body being thought to be harmful and of being a kind of prison for the soul. This is a strong, strong strain of this. And that the reason why humans are born naked is because to humble them. And then you get this, these humanists coming along and saying, actually, this isn't right. And they start to read um, people like Cicero, and an early Christian writer called Lactantius. And they say, actually, why we're born naked is because humans have potential. Unlike animals that are born with feathers or or fur or quills or scales, they can only be one thing. But humans are protean and they can develop into anything they want to. And God has given us a choice either to be civilised or to be bestial. And so there's this whole idea of what humanity is that's bound up with nakedness and that's promoted by these humanists. And that, in turn, is related to the voyages of discovery because one of the tropes that they have about these, um, the people that they discover is that they're naked. Oh. And so this is like... A sign. A sign that they're, that they're bestial, that they don't have civilization, they don't have the civilizing markers of clothing, so they don't have proper societies, and that they need, therefore, to be Christianized. And um, it's used as a justification for slavery, for the beginnings. You know, this isn't the Atlantic slave trade at the moment with the plantations and stuff like that. But um, sub-Saharan African slavery starts in Europe really in the 15th century. And so this comes along at the same time as the nude. And at the same time as these changes in nakedness are happening. In the beginning of the nude, particularly in Florence, a lot of these nudes are shown fighting Mm -hmm. and bestial at the same time. And it's exactly this class of people who are buying these objects that are shipping uh, slaves via Lisbon into Italy 
So it's not a, one of the things that is interesting about the nude is that it's thought to be a great honourable thing, but actually there's really problematic things about the adoption of the nude in, into uh, Italian uh, culture. So that's one thing. There's this idea about the naked body becoming a symbol of potential. The other thing, one of the other major things, is the idea of art. Ah, mm-hmm. so that's changing at that time as well. Yeah, um, hugely. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell me more about that. I, I mean, one of the kind of most traditional stories of the Renaissance, and it's an important one, is that there's an invention of a category of experience and a category of making that we now call art. So the word art or arte in Italian means skill in this mm-hmm. period. So you get guilds of painters, guilds of sculptors who are working in workshops and the painters, in, they're in different guilds depending on which place you're in. But in Florence, say the painters are in the chemist guild because they um, use similar materials. The sculptors are in the, um, tend to be in the woodworkers guild. So it's very manual. Goldsmith. It's very manual. It's about manual dexterity and skill and it's prized and um, for its first skill, you know, skill's a good thing, but they don't have this idea of it being of artistic genius in quite the same way. Though it's, it's, it's developing, it's rumbling along from Giotto onwards. Then you get this idea, really interesting and telling um, idea from a, a, another humanist called Manuel Chrysolaris, who's looking at Renaissance, uh, sorry, at classical sculpture, classical nude sculpture in Rome. And he's saying, so I'm looking at all these beauties. He's pretending he's like a gallant. So I'm looking at all these beauties in Rome. And why is it acceptable for me to look at them? You know, as a Christian to... Oh, you know, is it because I'm like attracted to them? And he says, no, because I'm not looking at them. I'm looking at the beauty of the mind of the maker. Mm. And that's a fundamental so, thing that we take for granted. Now. So the idea of the artist is a justification because mm-hmm. you're, what you're actually looking at is their ability to render on paint. Yeah. yeah. You're listening to Behind the Scenes at the Museum. In this episode, I'm talking to the art historian Jill Burke about her research on the Renaissance nude. There's another debate about nudes. Um, later on where they say, well, why did classical people, why is everything nude in classical art? Why, why are they so obsessed with nudes? And they don't know. And so they, they come, they say, well, you know, it could be for this reason. It could be because they're so innocent. It could be because they're so lascivious. And people don't know. And then there's this argument put forward where they say fashions and clothing change. So if, and they knew that classical dress was different. You know, people didn't wear togas and things like that in the Renaissance. But the human body doesn't change oh. and so you can compare it so you can p- compare different artists to one another if they paint the body or sculpt the body okay so that's so like reason. they could all be painting a tree and if you paint the same tree you can see the differences yes this kind artists. of thing so it allows um, those who know to be, able to be able to judge who's best the art of antiquity or the art of now so that's one reason and the other reason is this going back to this christian context that the human body is the best thing that was created by God. He created man, man in his image and likeness. And therefore, if artists can replicate that, they're doing, they're replicating the work of God. Ah. So this is... So they're also associating the artist with, with, God. with the Almighty. And it's exactly, yeah. so it's exactly this time. So when Mike, after Michelangelo does his um, the Sistine Chapel ceiling, it's at this time when people start to call artists divine. Oh, so the, let's talk a little bit about the Sistine Chapel because okay. it's covered in bodies. Is that right? It's covered in bodies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite overwhelming the Sistine Chapel ceiling. If when you go, I mean, it's difficult to talk about the Sistine Chapel ceiling because often going to see it, the whole experience is quite difficult uh, because it's very full and it's full of people shouting at you yeah. <laughs> to, to, not to not take, take photos. photos. Um, so 
And it's also an awkward space to look at because you have to look up all the time. So if people go and see the Sistine, one of the things that you have to remember is that it's a chapel designed for people to sit in for a very long time often okay. listening to things that they're bored about. So, you know, listening to some, so their eyes are wandering around. It's, it's, it's designed for a very small uh, and elite audience who are generally churchmen, right? So this is where was and still is where popes are, where people decide on the popes. Cardinals can be in there for a very long time. Um, and there's early sermons written for the Sistine's uh, chapel just after the ceiling was created that clearly are bouncing off the, the ceiling that clearly are kind of like in dialogue with Michelangelo's work. So when we look at it today as an art object, being shouted at by guards and kind of huddled and being very hot and just wanting to go and have an espresso, you know, uh, it's a very different experience. Um, so what we have is the story of the creation in the central part of the ceiling, which, it, you know, starts with the separation of light from dark and goes on to, um, you know, one of the most famous uh, scenes, which is the creation of Adam. And then goes right through up until the drunkenness of Noah, which is also a story about nakedness. So that is quite straightforward, the central programme. And then we have <laughs> stuck in between all this, the prophets and sibyls, who are also quite straightforward. Then this series of figures called the Inudi, male nude figures who sit round every other panel of the central uh, central line. And no one really knows what they're for. No one's really given any satisfactory explanation of them. And I think they're just kind of like these perfect kind of angelic, bodies and then um, there's various ancestors to Christ and things like that but the, the thing about the Sistine beyond its iconographical complexity is it's very complex is the fact that it was famous really famous right from its inception and people looked at it people went to wanted to go up on the scaffolding and look at it and talk to Michelangelo about it and there's accounts of this happening when it was still being made and what are they saying about it they're saying it's stupendous and it so they're talking about it in terms of art, uh-huh. greatness. Yeah, yeah. Are they talking about the nakedness? Yeah, I mean, Michelangelo is associated with nakedness even before the Sistine because he's the, his sculpture of David is 1504, the Sistine mm-hmm. is 1508 to 12. And, you know, people around Michelangelo, patrons around Michelangelo are really the first people who are making this idea that artists should create nudes, that it's a pinnacle of what artists can do is to create a nude in the image of God. Then the Sistine comes and people are going, yeah, Michelangelo, please make me a picture. <laughs> you know, do this, do that, do that. And Michelangelo is actually, ta- he's pretty awful as a person for patrons. <laughs> he's like, Because he does what he wants. Well, he just, he can't do what he wants because he's kind of embedded with the systems, a system of patronage that he has to do some work for the Medici family are hugely important in this time because there's a Medici Pope and the Medici in charge in Florence after 1512. But he does it really so grumpily and with such bad grace <laughs> that people are a little bit scared of him. Um, and so Leo X, who's Medici Pope, Pope uh, Giovanni de' Medici, says, has this conversation that's reported in a letter and says, you know, Michelangelo's terrible as terribilita, which is not just about his personal. It is about his personality, but it's also about his... He's a scary guy. Does it also reflect the changing status of the artist? Absolutely. you would have just sacked him. Yeah. And now... Now, there's a real change at the beginning of the 16th century where these patrons are saying, please, give me a painting to these really famous artists, so Michelangelo, Raphael, Leonardo da Vinci. Basically, they get to a point 
in say the 1510s when they are more wanted people want want work from them more than they need the patron, patronage so the balance of power between artists and patrons completely changes but the nude is part of that story because um to say you really appreciate nudes is saying something about your level of education and your ability to withstand temptation and your understanding of art. So it's all to do with patrons justifying their kind of intellectual abilities as well somehow and justifying their claims on power. And are these male nudes or female nudes or both? What's the both. difference? Uh, right. In central Italy, so we're talking Florence and Rome, male nudes are much more important in that tradition, particularly in the Florentine tradition. They kind of dominate Italian art more or less, up until the 1490s or something. You get some female nudes, really important female nudes, like Botticelli is mm -hmm. the person who really is famous for doing female nudes. Um, and he's working largely in the 1470s and 1480s. And he works beyond that, but he, he stops doing nudes in the 1490s, really. And then is that a mythological? Mythological painting. So things like the most famous um, painting that people will know is Botticelli's Birth of Venus. But... It doesn't really take off hugely, actually, the female nude until the turn of the 16th century when Venetian artists start to take up the female nude. And then you get huge amounts of female nudes. They're really all over the place. But in the 15th century, the female nude is more important in Northern Europe. There's a much stronger tradition of uh, female nudes in Northern Europe than there is in Italy. Uh, but this changes. Um, really, and it's really popularised by people like Giorgione and Titian. So there's a difference uh, between those two. But there's also a difference between, it's kind of related to the kind of societies that these work is created for, because there's a real appreciation of the male body, particularly in Florence. It's, you know, it's a very, it's a culture that has no problems with um, expressing um, desire and love and appreciation for a beautiful male body. It's a culture that really, that men talk about beautiful young men or boys even and is that sexual oh yeah yeah um there's a, a, now in in the discipline a very famous book by a historian called michael rokey called forbidden friendships where he went through the archives of a government body called the office of the night the office of the night and the office of the night <laughs> did what you'd expect the office of the night to do <laughs> which is to go around the streets, really, um, arresting people for having sex, <laughs> arresting basically men for having sex with other men. And so he went through these records, which were from the beginning of the 15th century to the 1490s, and found an astonishing amount of men were implicated for sodomy at this wow. time. About two-thirds of the male population were somehow involved. That's a with huge the number. Most. <laughs> it's normative. It's a normal thing. So what happens is when you get to puberty, um, these relationships with other men seem to start happening, except you take the passive role. And then when you get to about, you know, your mid-20s, you start to take an active role. And then when you're about 30, you get married. Yeah. So there's a lot of... Because women get married when they're maybe 15 to 18. Men get married when they're about 30. So there's all the, this big group with a big population of men who aren't married and um, the Florentine state responds to this in the beginning of the 15th century by a state-sponsored brothel to try and get people to have sex with prostitutes as opposed to have have sex with each other 
but it doesn't work. You know, this doesn't work. And that's and that's Because people still follow their desires. And and if they follow well, and because I think it's just it's not associated in the same way, that, way with identity. Um it's a life stage. It's expected that you'd be attracted to young men and want to have sex with them. It's so not, long as you get married later. So long as you get married later. Do what you're meant to do. I then. mean, if you don't get married later and don't follow those patterns, then that's when the law really comes in in force and punishes you really, really harshly. You know, with terrible punishments like burning, you know, a burning at the stake, this kind of punishment. But this kind of youthful dalliance is barely frowned upon. And when you know that, then you think, oh... There's a lot of male nudes created in Florence in the 15th mm. century. How does this fit in with this culture where people were finding, where men were finding other young men attractive? And probably women were as well, but it's always harder to access what women are thinking in, in, in this period. What about the female nude? What, what role did that play? Well, you get female nudes from the early 15th century and the earliest female nudes tend to be related to marital love so you get them you get nudes male and female nudes actually on the underside of chest lids so you all all clothes and linens and things are kept in chests there's no drawers or wardrobes or anything and so during marriage you get painted chests as a present and they have you know virtuous battles and things like that on the front or mythological scenes on the front and on the lid and then when you open the lid they'll have a reclining nude and female reclining nude. Female reclining yeah. nude often, yeah. And it's really, there's an idea that things that you look at can affect your interior state. That sight involves a kind of transaction between the inner and outer world. So you can get hurt by the eye. So the evil eye and stuff is really believed in this time as well. That you can look at things and you can, it can hurt you. So when women, when you're conceiving a baby you should look at beautiful things because then it can make the baby more beautiful and is that so about agents causality and agency yeah. they're not entirely sure where it comes from well, so it might come from they haven't they, really conception they don't know how it works and there's this idea that um, if pregnant women look at even a frightening sight they can impact on the fetus and it can create birth defects what we now call birth defects mm. so that it's very important for pregnant women to look at beautiful things but also during the act of conception they should look at beautiful things so they had these na- these nudes to kind of put couples in the mood but also to make sure that pregnant women are looking at beautiful bodies so they have beautiful children so who would have been looking at the pictures of uh, the paintings of nude women and mm. how did they reconcile that with all these strange attitudes or different attitudes towards sex and nakedness in society. So take, for example, the Dine and Callisto, Titian's Dine and Callisto, which is in the Gallery in Edinburgh, which often the school group, it's a really major painting, it's a really important painting, it was made for Philip II, 1555, um, part of a series of paintings Titian made. What's happening in the painting? Well, um, what is happening in the painting itself is that Diana, the goddess of hunting, the virgin goddess of hunting, is having one of her nymphs stripped... <laughs> so that she can see she's pregnant. And that's because Callisto has been raped when Zeus was in the form of Diana. So this is a pretend lesbian rape. And we're sitting, and of course, in the Renaissance, this was not for children. <laughs> it, was, it was something that uh, was definitely had a had a very uh, limited audience. It was probably um, meant to be displayed behind a curtain. So that, um, especially in Spain, there's a really constrained... Uh, um, attitude. There's an attitude that 
nude should only be for you know the elite the elitist part of the elite um and it shouldn't be for women women shouldn't be looking at them and certainly children shouldn't be looking at them um because they can't and it's not to do even with men going oh you know this is look at this lovely filly that kind of thing it's not it's not to do with this idea of of men having a sexual response is to do with the fact that they can have a sexual response but control it mm-hmm. so it's all to do with controlled male sexuality and how men can enjoy this kind of thing so men we're talking about men who are military leaders often who are commissioning this painting who are going around leading armies presiding over massacres of civilians and then they're going to these refined places having these refined classicizing you know ideas of what the of parties that were like classical parties and chatting to people but are able to take it because of their masculinity you know so it's taming the bestiality almost or the sexuality that's exactly it it's like saying this there are they are sexy but i've got it covered you know and this is exactly the same age as cod pieces are very important so again which is about masculinity it's this weird um you know i don't know if you've seen any of these paintings of men from the 16th century with enormous cod pieces (laughs) just like really shocking to us and they were thought to be kind of some people thought they were funny at the time as well but it's the same thing to do it's like drawing attention to masculinity but it's a controlled masculinity it shows you i can do these things and i can choose to do them or not um i see these paintings are the same you know paintings like a lot of titian's mythological paintings belong to that kind of genre of image so the ones where there's that kind of pastoral setting yes is that what's going on there? Uh-huh. The pastoral has a lot of elements to it, and not all of the paintings uh, that, that are pastoral paintings are part of this genre. Um, but they're all all the pastoral paintings are to do with escape, in one way or another. So, one of the things that maybe people aren't so aware of when they look at Renaissance artworks is that this is a pretty awful time to be living in Italy. The French invade in 1494 and there's a series of invasions after that until 1556. And these are not kind of battles that take place on fields in the middle of nowhere. This involves a huge amount of sacks of cities. People are getting massacred. There's also waves, wave upon wave of plague to deal with. People are dying of smallpox. People are dying of malnutrition. People are starving to death. People are eating rats in 1527. People are, um, you know, something, you know, the sack of Rome in 1527, um, tens of thousands of people were killed. So these like lovely nudes in pastoral settings are against this backdrop of horrific things happening to real people. And to their bodies. And to their bodies. And with all these different... And to their bodies. And these perfected bodies are not the bodies are not normal uh, for this period and so you see these i say in I say in the book the nude is a profoundly conservative form it's a conservative and comforting form for these elites who can escape because of course like always it's the people who don't have the money to escape to their country villa when the plague happens that die it's the people who you know don't have rich relatives who can buy them you know if if people were wealthy they'd be taken hostage and they'd be basically sold, the rich, you know, they'd be ransomed. The people who were poor just get killed. It's this kind of class that are the people who are buying nudes at this time, who are paying artists for nudes at this time. They're the people who don't want to be reminded of all these people getting killed effectively around them. It's a really grim period of history, Renaissance. Mm. When your exhibition was announced in Britain, it was it received a storm of... Press coverage, yeah. uh, where you're accused of picking quotas, and so it's done in the in the light of Me Too. How, what happened? How did you feel about it? Ah. 
Well, it was interesting because I was having a cup of coffee with my friend Stephen and we were drinking coffee and he said, oh, I heard on um, today an exhibition about the nude. I was like, really? He said, yeah, there's a quota for it. I was like, really? What exhibition is that? He said, at the Royal Academy. I was like, that's my exhibition. (laughs) Of course we didn't. Of course we didn't. So I I said, so what's happened? And it was a, a journalist from The Telegraph had kind of assumed that it would all be female nudes. And this is interesting because it assumes, it shows really a kind of level of not understanding Renaissance um, objects because the male nude is a huge thing in the Renaissance. And so Per said, well, Per Rundberg, who's the curator at the Royal Academy, said, well, actually, it's a more or less even split across male and female nudes, which is probably the case. We haven't counted, but probably is the case. And so this kind of became a quota and then they presented this question to the director of the Royal Academy and said, so what do you think about this quota in the, in the Renaissance news shows? And he was obviously caught completely off balance. And he said, well, that's an interesting idea yeah. or some such thing. And then it became fact. And they had all the stuff on to the Today programme. They, it was in the Telegraph. It was in lots of news outlets. No one asked anyone on the curatorial team. And the thing is, we are... S- all really politically correct the people on this on this curatorial team we are so right on right and so kind of like thinking about representation absolutely we think about it absolutely we thought about um the gender makeup of the team but of course there isn't a quota that would be ridiculous and it really also indicates how little people know about putting together an exhibition of this type exit put in a quota would be a nightmare because you can't have that kind of control over the loans. Were there intellectual surprises working on an exhibition rather than a book? Tom Cran, who is the chief curator of the exhibition, and he uh, is a Northern European specialist. He works on French art largely and works on manuscripts. Where is he based? He's based at the Getty. Uh, He's retired now, but he was based at the Getty. And him and another Italianist called Stephen Campbell, who I've known for a long time, emailed me a few years ago and said, why are you with this book? Because we're thinking we're doing this exhibition. And I'd finished the book by then, so I sent them the manuscript and said, you know... I'd it must have been in heaven. Well, it was great because... And they said, do you want to be part of this? I was like, yes. And so the exhibition has slight... as a different ideas to my book, but they're complementary. Because what the exhibition does... A lot of it, what it does is say, look, this is not all Itali- about Italian art. A lot is happening across Europe. Europe is a continental Europe, not, interestingly, England. But a continental Europe is a unit. And idea, and uh, there's a lot of cross-currents. And ideas about the nude uh, are circulating in different European centres and similar things are happening in different European centres at once. And that's completely right. I have no problems with that at all. And there's more emphasis on Christian art, which is really good. It was really nice after working by myself in the corner writing about nudes, talking to people who would listen to me about it, suddenly being part of a team. And it was lovely. Did working with them and working on it make you rethink anything in your research? Not really, actually. I think my book still still stands and I have a different idea of what the nude is, really, to the exhibition. Because for me, I'm always interested in, in... the notion of art and how art starts and for me the artistic nude really starts when they start doing life drawing and start to create a theory and praxis of how the nude should be created 
But for Tom, he was interested much more in the, its beginnings in Christian art. Um, and I, so I have a, it's not that I disagree with him. I think that's kind of right. But I have a, di- a slightly different kind of emphasis in my book. Um, Are there different influences on the two? Well, the Christian art really starts because of this uh, a renewed emphasis in spirituality on empathy and the body and, and, and trying to empathise with the figure of Christ and yeah. his humility and his pain. Suffering. Suffering, exactly. And that's true. You do get a lot of naked Christ for this reason. But is that the same as the artistic nude? Because I think that the nude is to do with appreciation of art, appreciation of artistry, this idea you're seeing the mind of the maker. There is a light Christian art, but the whole point of seeing a body of Christ is that you're seeing the mind into God, it's God's mind. You're using that as a stepping point for devotion, as opposed to the idea of the nude, which is to do with a kind of a physical manifestation of an idea. So they're really closely connected. And I think the Christian thing is a forerunner, as an absolutely necessary precursor of the artistic need. But whether it's actually it yet, I suppose, is where I differ slightly with Tom. But I don't even think Tom's wrong. I think it's just a difference of emphasis. Honestly, it's been an utter pleasure being involved with the exhibition from beginning to end. They're absolutely wonderful people to work with and so knowledgeable and so interesting and so generous with their um, erudition that these differences of emphasis, I think it's really important to be able to disagree with people without it being a problem. It's creative. Absolutely. Because you're also reassessing, why do I think that? So where I differ would be here. Uh, And it it actually clarifies. I think it's much better. And I think that's what's missing from discourse at the moment is the acknowledgement of creative disagreement Mm. and that you don't have to shout at people and be cross and make them agree with you. It's fine to disagree. And it's only through disagreement and working through it that then you can come to any form of, of consensus or any form of um, pushing knowledge on and moving knowledge on is precisely because of disagreement. There's a, Michael Baxendall wrote an article where he compared art history in an unlikely way to a 100 metres race, right, to a sprint. And he said, just because no one is going to run a 100 metre sprint in no time at all doesn't mean you can't get faster. And that's what I think we're trying to do. We're never going to get this right, but we can get better and I think our interpretation of Renaissance artworks has got much much better over the time I've been doing this over the last 20 years but it won't get better unless we allow creative disagreement in all aspects of life (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Scenes at the Museum Do let us know what you thought as well as ideas for future episodes on Twitter at Behind the Museum And do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Behind the Scenes at the Museum was written and presented by Tiffany Jenkins. The producer was Jack Fillimore.